of Let's Talk Asian. Today, I have a special guest with me, Jerry. Jerry is the founder and CEO of Just Like Media and the host and producer of many podcasts, including Dear Asian Americans, Asian Podcast Network, and Asian CRE Network. Prior to founding Just Like Media, he worked at WeWork and Accenture. He resides on the West Coast, is happily married, and a proud father of two. Most importantly, he is a big advocate for Asian American podcasters and the Asian community at large. Jerry, I am so excited that you're on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Diana. Uh, looking forward to talking about all, all the fun stuff in our community. So Jerry, I actually stumbled upon Dear Asian American podcast organically, and I really appreciated how diverse the perspectives were on the podcast. I think as Asian Americans, you know, we're not a monolith and there's a lot of variety and bringing that to life is not easy. So I'm really curious to know what inspired you to start that podcast and if you could share with our listeners a little bit about yourself. I think, you know, uh, so technically the Asian Americans uh, has been around for about a year as, as a podcast. Um, but I think to really understand where it all came from, I think it's our combined collective experience of wanting to have heard these stories uh, and see the people that look like us doing cool things and learning the stories behind them, um, probably even in our subconscious as, as little tiny kids. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a father of a four to two year old, and uh, my wife and I try to be very cognizant and intentional about what type of media we show him, right? In terms of what books we show uh, our kids, what, what TV shows they get to watch. Um, of course, from a nurturing and academic perspective, but also from who's on these screens, right? We saw Raya last weekend, and you know that was really awesome to show him. Uh, they grow up thinking and believing that they can be superheroes and superstars, right? And and what it actually does as well, and this is something that we need to be in, like actually intentional about. It stops the narrative that all things in the world, especially in the form of media and what we should aspire to be, is white in this country. Because think about the books that we read, think about the TV shows that we watched. You know, I grew up with. Uh, you know, TGIF and Boy Meets World and all these different shows that continue, you know, even um, uh, Saved by the Bell, where the good looking main characters are always white. And for growing up as an immigrant in this country, that's what defined Americanness. And so, you know, I, I think it's a combination of my entire life's experience of finally being able to uh, in a position to be able to create stories that I've, you know, always wanted. Um, you know, so for me, uh, the Asian Americans, you know, our, our longest lasting show uh, is dedicated to my daughter, Charlotte. Uh, we started the show on our first birthday last March and uh, just uh, celebrated our first year uh, doing the show. Um, and, and it's really because uh, I want to leave these stories for her and her generation of uh, leaders, future leaders, to hear that story, to hear Oma and Appa's friends and, and their peers to say, hey, you do whatever the hell you want. And no, no longer is I didn't know that was possible an excuse, right? And and so that's the goal. And and you know you you mentioned about the breadth of stories. Like I, I am a very privileged Korean dude, right? A straight-born Korean dude who is married and has two kids. My story, in the grand scheme of all that represents Asian America, is so tiny. And yet I know that people who look like me dominate the narrative when it comes to Asian American stuff. And so I want, and I'm not perfect. It's always, uh, you know, a lesson in progress and always learning and growing. But 
you know, I wanted to be very intentional to the best of my ability to bring in different voices that aren't mine. So, you know, uh, from countries I don't even know about, or I didn't know about different gender identities, how you ended up in America. Like I immigrated here. My parents actively chose to move here. Some folks came here uh, via a boat because of wars and through a refugee program. Some folks were adopted. Some folks had no choice. They were dragged here. So, you know, um, I, I wanted to also broaden the perspective and the idea of what an Asian American story is. And ultimately, the, the lesson is that there is no Asian American story, right? It's people get to the point saying, oh my God, there's so many different types of Asian American stories. And for us to even attempt to try to bundle it into one, you know, uh, monolithic stereotype confirming thing is it's just impossible. Wow, Jerry, I love that you've started Dear Asian Americans for your daughter, because if I had to go back to seven-year-old me, I think I would have really appreciated seeing stories from people who looked like me. Like, I didn't have any of this growing up. Um, you know, understanding your family's history and your cultural history is incredibly important, and it made me think about an exercise that we had to do, I think when we were in first grade, basically we had to do the family tree and all my white friends were really easily able to map out who their grandmother was, who their grandfather was, who their cousins, aunts, uncles were. And when I was doing that exercise, I remember feeling so, so frustrated because I didn't know my extended family like my parents immigrated here and yes I had visited them like a handful of times when we had the opportunity to fly to Korea but otherwise my immediate family was all I really knew so it was a hard exercise to do that and then also I remember in kindergarten you know we had to draw pictures of ourselves and looking back this is so so sad that i did this but i remember drawing myself with blonde hair and blue eyes and you know i was only in kindergarten like i was so impressionable and i would never do that today but it made me realize how limited exposure we got to our own culture and who we really are we could have a whole hour-long conversation on just what you shared because I think the, um, uh, there I say, the, the, the glorification of uh, facial features that are, are more Eurocentric. I mean, let's just, you know, call it out for what it is within our Korean-American or Korean community to get double eyelid surgery is, is something that is considered something one should consider doing to quote-unquote make themselves prettier, right? To, to raise the nose bridge, to, you know, all these things that ultimately aren't, necessarily celebrating uh, whatever you believe in god given you know natural facial features it, it's to emulate what korean media has decided or korean uh, culture has decided as better than what we were given right and and to really understand the root of that even diana we have to go super deep into korean history and to understand americans involvement in their own guilt of colonialization who they supported during the Japanese occupation. How the hell did the Korean War happen in the first place? And, and who came in to quote unquote save the day so that you got an entire country of people. I grew up in Korea until I was eight. Anything American, anything you know foreign was glorified, almost as if things that were made in Korea were not as good. 
right? Um, and that was in the 80s. That was in the midst of the development of the economy or economic powerhouse that we understand it to be today. But even before I became Korean American, I, I realized that I was already being conditioned to want to be something else. We have to unlearn so much more. And I think because of the complexities in the Korean and greater Asian family dynamics of loyalty, obedience, honor, respect, love. And I think Korean parents don't distinguish those two. I think it's just all bucketed into one thing. And so it's, it's hard to dissect, right? Like, if you love me, then you will honor me, respect me, never say no do everything I say, right? Even like, you know, I want you to go to this school and study that thing and marry this person. And that's why it is so hard, you know, for somebody like me who is in middle generation, right? I came in when I was eight, so I understand both cultures very well. For us to separate that is nearly impossible because we almost feel like you have to disown your parents to live in this new paradigm that is so different from what we were raised with. Now add religion into that context as I was, you know, as I had for me growing up. And it's almost inseparable. Understand too that our, our parents and the things that they believed in were a lot of it was rooted in the necessity for survival. Whether it was with our grandparents of Japanese occupation, they lived through war. My parents at least were born in the 50s, right after the war. And so they were just trying to literally live, right? And so they didn't have the privilege of having a conversation of identity about mental health, about stuff like this. And so, and then they came to a brand new country and they're like, oh shit, we got to start all over again, you know, in a completely different world. I have empathy for that, right? Because I, you know, I'm trying to raise my two children in a world and prepare them to succeed and be happy in a world that I don't understand because it's in the future. And so all of our parents did that. So I think it's under, it, it's, you know, it's necessary to state that and to not just poo-poo on everything about our family and our heritage that we don't simply understand. But that's the task. How do we teach each other? How do we parent uh, our children and even each other and encourage each other to go and thrive in a world that doesn't exist? And then so the goal is to create a world in, in which that we want them to live in. Me creating all these stories is creating a world where there shouldn't be a finite number of Asian American or Asian podcasts, right? Like the last year, Diana, like the number of new shows that have been created, I love it. And I do not see it as competition. I do it as a validation that my thesis is correct, right? And I help we get to a point where we don't even know how many there are. Because being Korean, Asian in America, sometimes people lead us to think that we're just 6% of the population. We're just 18 million out of 360. That's fine, whatever the numbers are. But we're four-sevenths of the universe, we're the majority. And this is not to say like now we're the majority and we're the minority. That's not it at all. But it's just a paradigm shift of how great our history is and, and how much we should honor that and be proud of who we are and where we come from and not just to live and to try to emulate even as much as to change facial features or to adopt new habits, right? And to wear clothes that don't feel authentic to you and to laugh at jokes that you're cringing at on the inside or to pretend that you like shitty things like cornhole, which I never will understand. I don't know, right? Like now I love some of these standard American things. Like I love barbecuing. I love football. I love sports. But why did I choose to even want to like that in the first place? I don't know. I also went to a very big football school. So that was just like what you're supposed to do as an American college kid. Who decided that? And what did I risk by not participating in it?
then you, then you'd been the, the loser who doesn't participate in sports. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. So imagine so and I know you're you're attending business school in the fall. So first of all, congratulations. And and two, you'll realize, and then I hope your classmates get it right, then many other MBA classes get right. The fact that if the international students don't assimilate to what a very small yet vocal group of American kids deem as acceptable social norms, that somehow then they're outside the norm. In New York City, without sports, I think it's a little bit different. But at Michigan, with the football program, if you didn't go drink at the crappy college bar on Thursday night with everybody, if you didn't show up to the tailgate party where more of it was happening, and if you didn't deck yourself out in maize and blue and do you know typical American things, as most Asian students have no idea what the hell any of this stuff is, then it's like th they were not being very good hosts. We were not being very good hosts as a American students to not just our students from Asia, but from you know from Africa and from Latin America, and and so you know, like what is a dominant culture? Who dictates what the dominant culture is and what happens to the people who don't choose to participate? Um, I, I hope that becomes an evolving conversation as um, content itself and, and social lives themselves get democratized into, cause we, we grew up in an era where there were five TV channels, right? Even in my lifetime. Um, and, and so everybody watched the same thing. Now it's not the case anymore. And so, yeah, and, and that's where I think, that the beauty of your show and the beauty of so many other people's shows is fascinating because there can be 10,000 different Asian American shows talking to the same exact guest, but because of who the host is and what questions she's going to ask and what context the conversations happen in, you're going to get a variety of different conversations. That's, I think it's beautiful. The diversity of the storytelling, even within our own community is what actually is going to encourage and motivate our young people to live the, the stories that they want knowing that there's not one thing that they have to try to be. I think you're totally right, because listening to more and more Asian podcasts has allowed me to see intimately how people are living their lives. Podcasts allow you to get exposure to a wide variety of people and perspectives, just the way a book can. In practice, it's very hard to have conversations with like, you know, hundreds of different peoples, but podcasts help you do that. And honestly, I've been working like for 10 years now, and I don't think I've ever come across someone like a leader at work where I said, wow, I really look up to that person and I see myself in that person and I want to be that person. And I don't know if it's my problem or if I simply haven't been exposed to like enough people quite yet, but I've always thought that. And I wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that I have not had the opportunity to see people like me in executive positions. I only very recently met a woman who is a C-suite executive. She's a chief digital officer at a large advertising company. And she was Korean. And I was blown away because I have never seen like a Korean American in a C-suite position in my life. And she's a woman. So I was like, oh my God, I need to be like best friends with her because I need to fi figure out how how she did it because <laughs> I don't know anyone who else who has. So yeah, I mean, it's just hard when you haven't seen it manifest into existence. You think, oh, this is something that just doesn't happen for me. But until you can see evidence of it, then you're like, oh, I guess it does happen. It can be done. That also comes with the fact though, Diana, that the people in those positions have to care enough to mentor people like you, to show up to the ERG meetings to sponsor stuff, to show up to community gatherings, because 
what I am really disappointed by, and I've always been disappointed by this, and I am always vocal about it. You can't change the way you look. I don't care where you went to school, what degrees you got, how much money you make, where you work, where you live, what school, what private school you, you send your kids to. None of that matters. When people want to attack you simply by the color of your skin, they don't care about any of that. But there are a lot of people in our community and, and elsewhere as well, especially in a professional context, go out of their way and do everything that they can to not remind people that they're Asian, to not remind people that they're black. Because from their perspective, hey guys, I made it. Let's not mess this up, right? If I'm too vocal about DEI, if I'm too vocal about Black Lives Matter, I don't want my partners to look at me differently, right? I want to be known for my, correct, they want to assimilate and they say things like, I just want to be known for my merits, right? My accomplishments, I earn my way here. Recognizing that our people at large need help or marginalized doesn't detract at all from what you've done. It actually makes it more awesome, right? But for some reason, there's a, there's a segment of the population and, and the more achieving and the higher uh, up the uh, these ladders that they go, people unfortunately believe that anything other than meritocracy rules all is that. So I'm so glad that you found a mentor who, who, who saw that. And, and I'm more optimistic that we're going to see more of that in the future. I've had direct conversations with leaders at companies that that scream meritocracy and saying my race, my gender, my nothing, none of it had to do with my success. And I hope that changes again in, in the world that you're about to enter both through school and, and what comes after school. That's what they preach. They want you in a rat race. They want you to see your classmates as competitors. And then when you get to these firms or these places, everybody's on a promotional war. What does that mean? I hope what people take away if, if they're listening to this and they're in these you know tough situations is your company has an obligation to make you f- feel like you belong. And, and it's not about some of these fringe benefits to make you feel comfortable, these work at home packages. Like you don't understand what that feels like unless you've code switched. In my group of friends, it was like you, you have the way you are when you're hanging out with your with your friends, like drinking soju on a Friday night. And then you have white voice. Right. And <laughs> Right. Like, and see, and you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Like there's a way we talk with your friends when you're at your most comfortable. And then you'd never talk like that if you're drinking a beer with your coworkers. And if you don't code switch, that's a privilege that you need to check. Right. If the way you talk to your friends from school, from work is exactly the way you talk at work, that's a privilege. That's an additional burden that we keep, that we uphold. That's so true. I see it in work every day. Like I work with a lot of sellers, like over 300 sellers, and a lot of them do tend to be male and white. And even over Zoom, this is not even like in person, but even over Zoom, you know, the first few minutes of a meeting, it's always like small talk or whatever. And there's like a kind of very specific flavor of small talk that tends to happen. And I always just sit there like, right, okay. Like it's hard to explain, but if you've been in that experience, you'll know. You, you do know that. And what we, so when people, when, when companies have these big campaigns, you know, bring your authentic self to work. But can I really? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> but that, but that's, that's where we need to get to, right? And in this pursuit of authenticity is, is when I actively decided to step away from taking a paycheck. Although I had my fair share of great experiences and good relationships and a lot of lessons learned, 
there were just too many pain points of existing in an ecosystem that wasn't created for me to be successful in. You need the people to stay within these organizations and to fight the change and to drive the change internally. But then people shouldn't stay at shitty companies in shitty situations just because society, shame, all these things. Like I left corporate world two years after I graduated from business school. That's unheard of. Without a safety net, most people don't. My, my classmates are still confused, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't talk to them anymore because if you don't like understand why I did what I did, I don't know what to tell you. When you made that decision, was it something that had been always in the back of your mind? Like this is not sustainable or was it something that you're very intentionally like, okay, I'm going to take a risk right now foregoing my paycheck, doing something that I'm passionate about and I care a lot about. What was your mindset in that? So the decision to leave quote unquote, I guess is a, is technically not correct. It was a decision not to return. And so after we work, and it was such a brief stay, I don't even put it on my resume. I was recruited away from WeWork to lead the LA team of a smaller flexible real estate company because their whole selling point was we're not as bad as we work or we're better than we work. And it was worse than we work. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, uh, so, so imagine going from B-School, starting a family, then go to Accenture. And that wasn't all that fun for me either. And, and then six months that we work, somebody recruits you away and then you're let go. Seven weeks. You got two kids. One is a newborn. But here's the thing that I knew about myself. And I think I was just approaching the problem in the wrong way. There weren't too many places where I actually felt like I could thrive and be myself. And so what I tried to do, and this is a very meritocratic or sort of logic-based way of like problem solving, right? So it's like, okay. Instead of looking at the whole problem holistically, you try to attack the variables. Everybody does this, right? If only I made more money, my life would be good. If only I had a different job, my life would be good. If only I went to business school, I, if only, if only, if only, right? So you try to change it. That's such a vicious cycle. It is though, but that's what we all do. And so, yeah. you know, I, I switched jobs a lot in my 20s. I, I try to make more money. I try to do different industries. I try to work for, you know, less crappy people. None of it worked. And I was like, okay. It must be that I'm on a different trajectory. So let me try business school. Let me get a graduate degree because then somehow that's supposed to put you on a different echelon of whatever. And you're supposed to go into consulting when you go to business school, right? Not what you not what you really love, but that's what you're supposed to do. So I did that. And then what are you supposed to, you're supposed to exit to something great? And then, you know, the summer of 2019, I had a very difficult conversation or a series of difficult and challenging conversations with myself and with my wife. And I was like, I understand the responsibility that I have to go generate income so for our family. I understand that. I'm not trying to abandon that. I just don't think I'm meant to work for somebody else. And that is an extremely difficult conversation to have when my wife also has graduate school loans. We have two kids and we live in LA. Like it's insane. I don't advise it. It's a lot of pressure. It, it is a lot of pressure, but I, I needed to go through that process to finally realize what my calling in this world was, which is to help people tell their stories. I couldn't help people until I started telling my own. I spent the better part of all of the rest of 2019 just like reading a lot, connecting with people. I did something wild on LinkedIn where I created 100 consecutive days of video content. Ooh, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> it, it is a lot. It's um, a really and, big commitment. Know, it, it is a big commitment. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't live. Um, I don't think LinkedIn had live at that point. I would shoot videos, I would edit, I would add captions. And you know what, like that led to the confidence to have me start a different type of podcast January of last year, which, which I don't do anymore. And then that led to the confidence of starting the Aries Americans 
And then all this happened. And then through it all, to be honest, like I was still applying and interviewing for jobs because the, the need to generate income was critical for, for a good chunk of 2019. Like I was on unemployment. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not ashamed to admit that. Like people go through shit. Yeah. Right. And, and then COVID happens. You know, I, I was waiting for a, a final callback from a, a large tech company. And I think I would have been moderately happy there. And then gone. All, the, all these things just stopped. But what also happened, Diana, which is the greatest blessing that I didn't see at the time, was that student loan payments stopped. Mm -hmm. Our daycare shut down. Large financial obligations stopped. Yeah. That gave me the opportunity to have a different conversation with my wife and said, as long as we have this window of opportunity, I want to do this. And I want to see how far I can take it, right? And and I need your help and I need your buy-in to make sure that we, we can cover our needs and, and live where we live and mm -hmm. keep the kids fed. That isn't something that I share publicly a lot because that's the reality. Yeah, it's never easy. Of course and not. also, your wife is amazing. I, I know. <laughs> she is amazing. She she reminds me every day. That's the path. Finally, after a year of doing it, after 100 episodes, after starting six different shows, like, and, and especially in this time of extreme challenge for our community, now people are like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why you're trying to advocate for us all the time, because I spent the last year building this platform, building a reputation, building my credibility now. And I don't do it ever to prove anybody wrong, but there is a little bit of not vindication, but validation in the work that I've been doing because people who look like me with my resume don't do this. Too many of my brothers stay in their corporate jobs and no shame to them, right? They're doing what they feel is best for their family. Somebody needs to do this. And, and I'm not trying to be like, I need to be the one to do it. But look, I get to have conversations with people and I get access into certain rooms because of my resume, because I went to school. That's privilege I completely recognize and appreciate. That's not, I get to help companies whose names everybody would recognize this year and helping them craft their uh, Heritage Month event calendar. That's insane. It still boggles my mind. They are valuing my work and the work that I've done and the work that I, and the value that I bring compensating me properly for my time and my work. It's almost as if you have like more influence outside of the company than inside. You are 1000% right. I, I got to give credit to where I first learned of that concept and it is uh, from Menda Hartz. She is a, a friend of mine. She is a, a black American author, wrote the book, The Memo, and, and just an amazing person. She too had a very similar path to mine where she was an executive or a leader within the company for a long time and decided to do her work outside. She shared, and this is not a verbatim quote, but you know, she shared with us, I thought that I would do all of my work influencing large organizations from the inside. And when I left corporate America, I didn't think I would have that influence. Little did I know that by doing the work from the inside, you actually have more impact on the people than I would have ever had on the inside. And that's exactly how I feel. Because when you're on the inside, whether it's a school or a government or a company, you fear what may happen to you if you say the wrong thing. So you don't say everything. So you don't say anything, right? Because they're not there to protect you. HR don't protect you. People find me on LinkedIn and I get like amazing messages all the time because I don't have an HR pinging me and saying, maybe you should take that down or rethink that. I am a one man show. I say what I want. I will own up to it. If there's blowback, if there's responsibility, I will own it, but I don't respond. I don't work for anybody. The worst thing that can come from me saying the wrong thing at that company function is that I don't get invited back. I collect my check up front and I don't get invited back. The worst thing that could happen to somebody who actually works there, they get fired. So what I've also realized is that 
me being very vocal on the outside empowers the people on the inside to use my words and to use my posts and to use me to drive change on the inside, which is something I, I didn't really think about, right? And so I am happy to be the loud guy on the outside that helps the people on the inside because they I know what they're going through. I know what they're feeling. I've been on the inside at various levels in, in different industries to understand that there are a lot of Asian Americans on paper that should be celebrated because they work at all these companies and look, they went to school and they're making all this much money and it's sexy and it's, you know, but they're miserable on the inside. They're miserable because they can't be themselves at work. Yes, I totally agree. And my personal motivation has always been to make an impact and a positive contribution to society, both inside of work and outside. But you know, the workplace setting has a lot of restrictions. I think as much as corporations try to encourage inclusivity and openness, it's at the end of the day, a still professional setting. And there's a lot of things you may not want to bring up or talk about in that context. And that's why I do the podcast. So it allows me to express creativity and my personal values and beliefs. You know, when I was in high school, I originally aspired to be a journalist because I loved storytelling and I loved hearing and learning about stories of other people, but I never pursued it as a professional career because I was always taught that financial stability is really important. Like that is a value that my parents instilled in me. So I was afraid of not making money. And that is why even today I'm doing this podcast you know, as a passion project, like I don't do it to make money. Every time Spotify alerts me to monetize, I don't do it. <laughs> but yeah, I was taught to check a lot of boxes. And I think there's a reason why they instill those kind of values in us. You can do both, right? You, you, it, it's not binary. And I think that's the, uh, really critical. Like people look like me and they go, man, I can't do what you do because you actually quit your job. And like, and I was like, yeah, but you could do both. You have to do both, right? Because um, again, we, we need soldiers on the inside, on the outside, and, and we need, you know, versatile players that do both, right? Because everybody has a role on the team and it's, it's, it's against the system. It's us against centuries of indoctrination and expectation, right? Um, also, also to that point of like, you know, checking the boxes, like, again, let, let's go back to our parents and have some empathy for like the world that they came in. Right. So you know, coming out of the war in the 50s, Korea was a war toward country. There was one way to be successful. Go to one of two schools, three maybe, right? That's it, right? If you go to Seoul, you say, Korea, your life is good. So they came here and they're like, okay, same shit. Go to, go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, maybe Stanford, right? If you're open-minded, you know, go to grad school because in Korea, that's what worked. But in a world of lack of information, what do we humans relegate to? What we know. That's all they knew. And my dad's a doctor, right? Like, so he's like, hey, it worked for me. You should do the same. And I was like, no, I don't want to go to med school, dude. Like, it's too much studying. You know, and, and I had the opportunity. Like, I, I went to a science school, right? Like, I had all the opportunities to take the nerdy classes. Like, we have to evolve. The world is changing, right? This year is my high school 20th anniversary, like, reunion. Can't go to New York to celebrate it. But, you know, I've been really, like, introspecting, like, what does this mean? That was half a lifetime ago, right? I, I turned 38 this year. And thinking about when my kids are in college 20 years from now, like, how different is the world going to be? 
And, and so, and so why are we teaching hard skills? Why are we obsessing over hard skills? Why don't we just teach people to be goddamn good human beings and to learn to adapt and, and to focus on things that are going to be evergreen? Those things might not pay bills today. And look, like our podcast, for anybody who's like even remotely curious, our podcast don't make any money. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't make any money. Right? But- <laughs> But podcasting as a skill has made me money because I produce shows for other people. Now I go speak about podcasting. I teach other people how to podcast. I've become a much better interviewer and a conversationalist myself so that those have unknown benefits financially and professionally. You got to learn the skills that are adaptable. And then people get confused. Like, I'm not a podcast person. I'm a storytelling person. And for now, podcasting seems to be the most easiest and the most ROI positive way. I mean, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on Clubhouse now because that's where the attention is. Two weeks from now, it could be gone. People should focus on the things that they can do forever and less on titles. The term influencer gets thrown around a lot, but it's like, okay, like who are you influencing and what are you trying to influence them to do? Because that's a big responsibility. Like I don't think of myself as as a voice for the community, but it is very humbling to be reached out to to talk about stuff like this, represent a community far bigger than me. I bear that responsibility with honor because I see the world very differently. Uh, I was born in Korea. Raised in Fullerton here, very Korean neighborhood in Southern California. Went to high school in the Bronx, lived in, you know, very multicultural Queens, came back to LA. Like, there's not very many people who've experienced youth in three different, could not be more similar parts of the world. And then that shapes how I see the world. Where, where will all of this take me? I have no idea. The last week has been introspective in the most ridiculous way possible. My daughter turned two. We celebrated the one year of the show. We're pivoting the show a little bit with the new format. I'm looking to start new projects. I want to create communities for Asian people to be themselves and to thrive. I don't I don't think that place exists right now in person or in the internet. I'm beginning to speak more, as I mentioned, lead workshops and storytelling and about Asian American identity. It's frightening because that category of speakers don't exist right now. We have to create the whole damn category ourselves. If you ever want to be motivated in a way that you've never been, go to a bookstore, go to the business section or the self-help section and look at all the books that mediocre white dudes write and how common the themes are because all the ideas are being recycled and reimagined. So, you know, I know folks who are listening can't see it, but this particular part of my bookshelf is my Asian American shelf. Everything else below it, sadly, is not. Like, I'm trying to collect Asian American books to uh, educate myself with, to leave for my kids. And just to, as a daily reminder, like I look at this screen every day and I see the books behind me every day. The goal is to put my own book up there one day. I fully support that. And I will be rooting for you on the sidelines. No, thank you. I, it, it, it takes all of us. And so, yeah, th this has been fun. I often don't sit on the other chair or sit in the other chair, but this has been fun. Do you have any last bits of advice that you would have for anyone who wants to start storytelling in an Asian American context, how they can get started or what examples to learn from? Tactically speaking is just to do it. The medium doesn't matter. Like do it on Instagram if that feels comfortable to you. Like stop obsessing over perfection. We, we just uploaded our 101st episode today. That's going to sound fundamentally better than my first episode. So don't listen to that and saying like, oh my God, I can't, whatever. Two, learn history. Learn Asian American history, watch documentaries, read books, learn your own family's history, right? It's a conversation that immigrant kids don't have enough, but like, and there's some ugly parts of our shit that we don't want to talk about, but learn it. I'll end with this. My son loves Cars, Disney Cars, the movie. People might not know it because we were like in college when it came out, but, but his best friend is the tow truck and the tow truck drives backwards better than he does going forward because he has these side mirrors. And so it's Mater, the tow truck, it's tow Mater. So Mater says, you got to know where you've been to know where you're going. Like that drives my work. 
because without knowing where you're going and honoring the people who've been there before you and blazed the trails, like you just don't know. Yeah, you don't know. And you don't recognize how far you've come either. And I think recognizing that progress is motivation for continuing. Yeah, thank you so much, Jerry. If our listeners want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Yeah, thank you. Look for me on LinkedIn. JerryWan.com takes you to my LinkedIn page. I am at JerryWan everywhere except on Instagram. I am at JerryJWan. And so I would love to connect and to learn from all of you. Uh, Diana, thank you so much. Best of luck in school as you progress. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Jerry. Bye.